Eavesdrop on experts, stories of inspiration and insights. It's where expert types obsess, confess and profess. I'm Chris Hatzis. Let's eavesdrop on experts changing the world. One lecture, one experiment, one interview at a time. Alison Campbell is Associate Professor in Theatre, Directing and Dramaturgy at the Graduate Master's Coursework Program, Victorian College of the Arts, University of Melbourne. Her work is also about developing dual strategies around her own queerness and the queerness of others, which she describes as running interference and going feral. In 2021, Alison and Steve Farrier will lead a hybrid digital face-to-face version of their Feral Queer Camp, hosting activities about what makes performance queer and how we might develop a network of queer thinkers, all stemming from the performances in the Midsummer Festival in Melbourne. Details of the Feral Queer Camp, open to all, are in the podcast program notes. Alison Campbell sat down for a Zoom chat about her work with Dr. Andy Horvath. Alison, what is it that you teach and research? Well, a lot of the time I'm teaching dramaturgy. And so dramaturgy is one of those words that's so off-putting. And there's lots of different etymologies and arguments about where it comes from. But what I would talk about in terms of a contemporary dramaturgical thinking or even a dramaturgical consciousness is all that comes into play around the awareness of the composition of a piece of performance. Now, dramaturgy can be applied to all sorts of things, actually. Um, It can be taken off into political thinking and all sorts of ways, but it comes really through from theatre, and it is actually about how elements are arranged and organised. So it's compositional thinking, the selection, it's all about the arrangement of the materials. And I think that's dramaturgical thinking. But what I would really stress is that dramaturgy is not just about the internal composition about a piece of artwork, like how choices in costume or lights or the text or the nature of the performance style or any of those things, how they work and how they cohere or don't cohere. Um, It is vitally about the relationship between that internal world and the external cultural, social, political environment. Why would we do this piece of performance now? Why here? Who for? To what end? And those are the driving questions around what I would call a dramaturgical thinking. And you also research it. And I also research it. And that has really, um, so really my research, teaching and practice have now really coalesced over at least 10 years for a long time now around queer performance and so that might have for example and I put like um, a a co-edited book with Stephen Farrier who's at Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in London in a book called Queer Dramaturgies International Perspectives on Where Performance Leads Queer and the subtitle is really important because what we were arguing was that rather than kind of this theories and we're illustrating them through performance, we were saying that actually performance can teach us things about queerness and that we can speak back or have a dialogue with theory. It's not that one has a hierarchical position above the others. But I've also got a real passion and long time relationship with work around HIV and AIDS. So a following book was a collection called Viral Dramaturgies, which was really looking at representations of HIV and AIDS in performance from the kind of what was called the Lazarus moment in 1996, you know, when antiretrovirals come into play and it's a kind of 
that initial stage of AIDS crisis and the kind of performance work that was made around that would have been the driving force in making work around HIV and AIDS to a period that comes after, which of course was not an after for everybody in the world. It was it was a Lazarus moment for those who could afford those antiretrovirals and had access to them. So the world of HIV and AIDS and the performance connected with it is a, an extremely complex one. You know, so as a director and a maker, and I would describe myself as a maker because often I'm not just taking a script and directing it. I'm kind of leading projects and thinking through how to work collaboratively to make those pieces. And they can be led in lots of different ways. Can you explain what queer performance is as a genre? Sure. And actually, it's so funny because you know, in writing queer dramaturgy, Steve and I, of course, had to set out what's a, what's what is a queer dramaturgy or what are queer dramaturgies and what do we mean? And of course, the plural is very important. Um, there is not one, but um, we really ended up doing this thing, which again, I laugh wryly. And given that queer is so resistant to binaries of gender and sexuality and of anything really, we've, we've created this binary between gay theatre and um, queer performance. And so we felt this was sort of foolhardy, but we tried to kind of get at something, even if we then had lots of people saying, look, no, you can't claim this. At least it would be a conversation. So where we ended up with was, for instance, you might have a company that decides to do, you might, the National Theatre might decide to do a, a, or a new production of an old play like Angels in America by Tony Kushner, who's, you know, um, it's clearly a play emerging from the time of AIDS crisis. It's very much got sexuality and gay male sexuality really in, in the heart of it. But actually, if that company is going to, you know, maybe not, you know, the audience is definitely a mainstream kind of mostly bourgeois middle class audience at the National Theatre in London. And the director or the team or the actors may not be queer identifying or gay then that's one mode of performance. And we might say that gay theatre really has been so important in terms of representing the LGBTQI plus community and that those representations on stage have been hugely important, but they might still sit very much within a kind of normative or heteronormative model of theatre, which is character-based, psychological realism. We empathise with a character who... You know, in, in this stage of this, we suddenly would have maybe a gay character, which already was radical and needed to be done. But it's still following that formal model, which is based on psychological realism. We empathize with this character, perhaps, and perhaps know something more about what it is to navigate the world as a gay person. Where Steve and I tried to come up with what are queer dramaturgies, we posited, you know, we kind of suggested that maybe to make work that is queer relies on the maker actually identifying as queer and that being a kind of philosophical position um, because, of course, queer, unless it's being used as its umbrella term, which is not very helpful, queer is absolutely a philosophical position and political positioning. And so it would be about makers identifying as queer and then thinking about the relationship between that work and its audience. Who is coming to that? Is it in a venue that we would know of as being a sort of gay or queer venue? And also it's about the processes of making. And that is largely around collaboration and 
who else is in that team and is this being driven by this kind of um, commitment to challenging normative forms and structures as well as perhaps, say, telling gay stories. I like that. You're introducing the notion of queer gays like we know about um, advertising through the male gaze, which a lot of females felt disenfranchised from, you're sort of creating the queer gaze. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I mean, queer is such a complex term and there are many people who, you know, not that much older than my generation, who really still the pain in it is too much to get over, even to use it as a disruptive term. Then there is as I say, the unhelpful kind of just using it to actually replace gay and lesbian and bisexual and all those very diverse groupings that get sort of clobbered together. And queer is a handy monosyllabic way of doing that. (laughs) But it's not that useful. Again, because some people don't want to identify with that term coming from a place of, you know, deep hurt and wounding. And then we've got the sort of relationship between queer theory and queer self-identifying and queer emerges out of academia, but not only out of academia. So queer studies and queer theory sort of emerge in the early 90s, start of the 90s. But it's also picking up from activist on the street movements. So groups like Queer Nation in the US who were really kind of... um, inserting a a really resistant mode of going around being in the world that wasn't about the rights-based kind of agenda of, you know, we're gay, but we can't help it and we need to be treated equally as a human right, which is also extremely important, but it's very quickly an assimilationist thing into, you know, same-sex marriage, which is assimilating into heteronormative institutions, or it was very much driven for a while around, you know, gays in the military and, you know, different things which are all assimilationist things into bigger power structures and institutional structures. So, Alison, how did queer culture as an academic research field start? So really in those years of the early 90s and so there's feminism and feminist theories and women's studies and um, then there's also the emergence of masculinity studies finally you know as if you know finally we realize that men are worthy of study because they're not just the default that everything else has to be studied around so that's happening and then um, it's really Teresa de Loretis who was a who is a feminist film scholar who called a conference which for the first time I think raised the idea of queer as a scholarly enterprise. It also coincided with um, Judith Butler's work, um, very well-known work, Gender Trouble, which raised sort of queering questions around feminism in terms of a feminism that sits very firmly within a binary. And Butler was really kind of opening up this field where queer might or any sort of thinking actually that would challenge this binary of male and female and look at a wider spectrum of gender and so that work is really quite foundational to our thinking around queer as an academic investigation 
But in that book, Butler also uses drag as an example of the performativity of gender. And that became very confusing, but it was it leads us into a field where performance scholars going, oh, okay, so right. So we're in the field of performance and performativity. So surely in theatre, we've got something to say about this. But actually, um, I'm often exercised in teaching the difference between performativity and performance, which I'm not sure you'll want me to go into right now. However, that sort of emerges as part of these questions. And so we do end up with a growing field of scholars looking at, you know, gender and sexuality and performance. And that was coming through, again, I'd say from feminist theory and great feminist scholars and feminist theatre scholars. So a lot of work by Jill Dolan, Sue Ellen Case, uh, Elaine Astin and Geraldine Harris. But those are US and UK. So there's all that complication in it too, but where this discourse emerges from and who it sits with and I mean, I'm naming the female identifying scholars. Queer theory has quite rightly been accused of sitting with the gay white cis men. So it's got its own issues. And I suppose as um, as a female identifying and quite femme, so cis woman myself, there's always this kind of deliberation about whether I move into kind of feminist working groups or stick in the queer ones, because sometimes it can get a lot with all the boys. But I feel it's really, really important. And I have so many allies amongst those scholars too. I was interested to hear that you said there were various misconceptions about what queer was and that in a societal sense, we automatically default to the male queer. Well, it's so complicated because there's layers and layers of this. And one is, again, you know, to reiterate the sort of um, a mainstream kind of conflation of queer as standing in for lesbian, gay, trans, bisexual, intersex, all of those different categories and many others and gender non-binary. And um, that's a kind of populist kind of grasping of that, which doesn't really help. But I think that the kind of then there's a sort of internal within the, let me call it, <laughs> now the queer communities, which is that, first of all, who gets access to academia and who gets access to knowledge? Who can actually read some of these, you know, extremely complex theorizings around queer identity that are part of a body of work around queer theory, which is what really drives a lot of my work around what I've called my feral queer pedagogies, which is about how do you take this knowledge back out of the institutions, the academic institutions, which are deeply normative and quite exclusionary to queer people. How do you kind of have conversations that draw on those very productive ideas that have come from deep kind of thinking through theory, but have those in the queer community not reliant on people who have made it past all those barriers to get into higher education. And believe me, those barriers are high if you are a queer identifying person who maybe has not felt comfortable within higher education or even previously and more likely within secondary education or that you've gone into higher ed, but actually it doesn't really deal with your life at all or feel relevant. Um, so the strategies that I've been working on around feral pedagogies are very much around how do we have these conversations? What can we take 
from the academic body of work around queerness and what it is to, to identify as queer and navigate the world as a queer person, um, but outside of those kind of very elite environments. I'm really keen to know more about your project, Feral Queer Camping. Yes, oh, I'm delighted you've asked about this. Um, so when I was thinking about feral pedagogies, and the idea of feral is the, the domesticated gone wild. And I loved this idea because I see myself as having been domesticated into the academic institution. And what would happen if I were to de-domesticate myself and run wild? And so with my great research partner, Steve Farrier, we were talking through this and we came up with this idea of the feral queer camp. And the camp essentially runs alongside a queer arts festival because we need the partnership. The partnership there is really great because that's when most queer performance is happening all at once, you know, at a time of year when we're gathering a lot of things together. And that can give us access to that performance. And basically, the invitation was precisely to say, look, any of you who have either been in higher ed and it didn't work, didn't get as far because you weren't interested or have felt like you couldn't or you've been through and you still want more. This is an invitation to become a feral queer cohort who see performance together throughout the duration of the festival and then work out ways to talk about it. And I will just really strongly emphasize here that I might be a facilitator and Steve and I might be facilitators, but we are learning as much from everybody who comes to the Feral Career Camp as they are learning from us. What we might bring is the stuff, that stuff that we bring as academics, you know, knowledge about queer theories or and its trajectories and its ideas. But we're also really coming at it as, as theater makers and theatre teachers so that we're kind of trying to open up the conversations within queer communities to do that conversation about the work that we're seeing and making and experiencing. Because one of my great arguments is that if mainstream reviewers ever come to queer performance, which mostly they don't, so firstly they don't come and we suffer from that, and then when they do come, they actually are not necessarily understanding what I was talking about earlier, which is a resistant to norm, a resistance to normative forms. So it's actually trying to do, it's trying to work in different ways from normative theatre. So if you come with a lens that expects it to perform in a certain way and it doesn't, well, then actually those reviews don't help us either. So my great mission in the world is that we have more of us from within the queer community who could actually really talk through what it is to be at that performance, what it feels like for us, what it does, what the thinking is doing, and actually be able to talk about that composition or that, yeah, that dramaturgical arrangement of things, which mean that the choice of content and the mode of delivery and um, where it is and how it functions is all part of the discussion. It's not just about, let's tell us what this play was about and sorry I've just done air quotes around play because mostly queer performance isn't plays and they don't work according to you know classical ideas about what a play is or isn't supposed to do so if you've got a resistant set of aesthetic strategies going on actually you want people who can read and translate those for other people and so that we're really building our understanding and wealth of discussion around what we might call queer performance. That's really nice, that sort of 
uh, sharing of knowledges and experiences of the performance. Have you had to reinvent the notion of performance in this pandemic world? Oh, yes. Yes, we have. And um, look, uh, I would say that like everybody, you know, the queer community has really suffered from lack of being in spaces together, particularly if you are a group that really does not thrive in mainstream uh, environments and actually seeks out spaces where we can acknowledge our our own our ways of doing things and that there's many many diverse ways within that let me just ensure that I'm not trying to claim some stock queer way of existing in the world I mean that is many and diverse and full of complications but actually in many ways and many places we seek spaces to go and queer performance is one space that queer identifying people will go to to be with their tribe and I mean theatre is a way of collectively thinking through the world you know, we're actually in a space together and something's in front of us and we're kind of working our way through it together. And so the Zoom performance does not give us access to that kind of affective quality or what Butler might talk now about, that kind of the importance of assembly and gathering together. But what, you know, I have a wonderful PhD um, student at the moment, Regan Lynch, who's been writing about, who is writing his PhD on queer performance spaces in club performance in Melbourne and a bit beyond, but really focused on Melbourne. And when the pandemic started, there is the crisis moment of what do you do when your work was going to be really field work in those spaces and now those spaces don't exist. But what's happened is that he has been able to recalibrate that so much because people did want to talk when those spaces were removed. They really did want to talk about the value of them and how they work. And he's also been able to analyse kind of Zoom performances that emerged and kind of really do a beautiful analysis of what stays in, in terms of the Zoom performance. And a lot of that is about history of life performance and a, a drawing attention to the history and memory of that. I mean, he would talk about this much better than me, but I think in terms of the question you're asking, he is someone who's already really in great depth and with great rigour in investigating exactly that question. What would you like to activate in society? Gosh, that's a big question. Mm, I'm putting you in charge of the countries and uh, the <laughs> university's agenda. What would you like to do with it? This, I would answer this differently every single day and maybe at different times of the day, but I do feel like our institutions, and I would probably, you know, the closest one that, you know, the one I know most intimately, of course, is the academic institution is that they're governed by very outdated systems and colonial systems. And do we burn them to the ground, which would be, you know, some days that's my answer, burn all of these institutions to the ground and start again? Or do we work from inside to try to change them? I feel like um, along with a lot of people have really struggled over the last few weeks with everything um, happening in Canberra and the ingrained misogyny and patriarchal governance so to queer it we'd need to we literally would need to throw out all those systems and start again to genuinely queer things we'd we'd need to throw them out and start again so my answer for today is that's what I would do um I know that's not possible so in the meantime it's working 
from within and outside. So for instance, when I talk about feral pedagogies, I talk about a dual set of strategies. And one is feral queer camping, for instance, which is taking the knowledge and believe me, as much money as I can get out of the university and taking it outside. And the other one is what I call running interference, which is my, my term for what I do within the university, which is kind of to get on committees and take on roles where we can do small things, which are big things, which are you know, whether that's around the way toilets are organised on campus, whether it's about kind of holding staff accountable in terms of language, which is not binary, all of these things, which over time add up to make somebody's experience on campus difficult or impossible, but bit by bit to make each of those somehow a little bit better. So that's the slow mode. And it brings small little successes that are just about enough to keep you going. And then, yes, in my utopian version, though, is that we rethink it all again with a great community of elders and talk about what learning is actually and how learning happens over a whole life. Admirable indeed. So, Alison, next time we wander past a flyer that advertises some queer performance and we decide to attend, what would you like us to think about? I think probably the first thing would be an open-mindedness around what galvanises someone to make a performance and identify it as queer. And know that that means it's not necessarily telling stories about gay or lesbian or trans or bisexual or intersex people, but that it will be telling Actually, I'm not even going to say telling. I would really try to resist that. It would be giving an experience that doesn't necessarily follow the rules of going to the Melbourne Theatre Company or um, going to something at the Art Centre, for example, that it would ask you to perhaps um, suspend expectations for a little while and sit in that world and see where you emerge at the other side. Associate Professor Alison Campbell. Thank you very much. You're very, very welcome. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you to Alison Campbell, Associate Professor in Theatre, Directing and Dramaturgy at the Victorian College of the Arts, University of Melbourne. And thanks to Dr Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts, Stories of Inspiration and Insights was made possible by the University of Melbourne. This episode was recorded on March 22, 2021. You'll find a full transcript on the Pursuit website. Production, audio engineering and editing by me, Chris Hatzis. Co-production, Sylvie Van Wall and Dr. Andy Horvath. Eavesdrop on Experts is licensed under Creative Commons Copyright 2021, the University of Melbourne. If you enjoyed this episode, review us on Apple Podcasts and check out the rest of the Eavesdrop episodes in our archive. I'm Chris Hatzis. Join us again next time for another Eavesdrop on Experts.